I'm Dan. And I'm Jack. And welcome to Young and Sober, a podcast where we discuss what it means to get sober under the age of 30 and stay sober. If you're sober, sober curious, or just curious, you've come to the right place. Any discussion heard here is the experience of the individual and should not be taken as the stance of AA as a whole. Welcome to episode 42. This week we'll be chatting to Katie, who's come to talk to us about being young, sober, and an experience of treatment. How are you doing, Katie? Not too bad. Thank you guys for having me. Great to have you. And yeah, we're excited to, to hear about your experience. But before we start, we've got a question um, from a listener, Leanne, who was listening last week. And she said that her experience, she's basically been reading a lot of self-help books about stopping drinking and, you know, mental health. And she's not really experienced anything related to, to AA. She picked up the big book, but saw some of the kind of old language. So she's just really wanting to understand what the difference is between AA um, and the big book and some of the kind of popular self-help books out there that she's reading. So Katie, I don't know if you have any experience with, with those and um, would be able to give Leanne some tips. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, when I first looked through a big book, I got put off straight away because of the language, very dyslexic, sat there and was like, I'm never gonna get this. I don't understand this, this probably isn't for me. I think the difference for me between, you know, going to AA and the big book and then all of the other self-help books is I feel like where, you know, it's in the name, self-help is on your own, it's self-help. Whereas for me, the big book and AA is you're doing it together. You're doing it with people. And also it means you have people to ask about these words, these sayings and all those things in the big book that you don't understand. And I think self-help books are great if they work for you. But for me, it's very much I have to do them in tandem. I have to do them together. Yeah, thanks, Katie. What about you, Dan? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I know a lot of people that have come in because they read a self-help book. That was somebody taking the 12 steps and making it addressable for people. The number of people I've known that read Russell Brand's book and then came into AA is really common. So I think those books are really helpful and they serve a purpose to help people. The difference for me is exactly what Katie said. It's not self-help. It's going to a, a program, a group, there's meetings, there's service, there's other parts of this. It's using a network of fellows and you know, finding people that want to pass on what they got because that's all they're doing. And then the final kind of step for you is then passing on what you got. And so I think for some people that is writing books that help people. And then for other people, it's really doing AA and those things. So I think they work great in tandem. But for me, just my experience is I need AA, not just a self-help book. Yeah, it's really interesting how they kind of, you know, you read the self-help book and they you get well for me i get really like excited by the prospects of like oh is this is going to change what i do x y and z and then by the next week you've kind of forgotten that was that was in there and most of the stuff that's in there is actions that you should do on a daily or weekly basis to help you and like aa just gives you that structure to to be able to do those actions you know if some of them might suggest different ones but it gives you the space to just be able to do those actions on a daily and weekly basis like you guys have, have mentioned okay so yeah i guess moving on to, to the main part of the show so katie just it'd be great if you could give us a quick introduction to, to yourself a bit of history about your your drinking and, and where you're at now before we talk a bit more about treatment and and how that's worked for you yeah for sure so i'm katie I'm um, 25. I got sober when I was 23. I've been sober now for two years and eight months. 
and my oof, my drinking took me to a really pretty dark dark place and I guess the easiest kind of way you know to go to explain it for me was very much that my alcoholism and my drinking everywhere I walked I felt like there was my my own body was chained to and like shackled to my ankle and every step I took I was dragging a body behind me that's pretty much the way I describe my alcoholism because it took me to such dark place that anything and everything I did was like wading through treacle you know and carrying and that body that I talk about you know that imaginary body was filled with all the feelings of shame disgust what had I done what was I going to do where was I going to get my next drink how was I going to get my next drink who could I steal a drink off you know all of those thoughts were in my mind constantly and I'd carried them everywhere which meant that to be honest for a very long time because I have a history with other addictions as well I was never present in life so I didn't actually know what life was and yeah two years ago in eight months I hit a real big rock bottom I work as a I'm training to be a primary school teacher and at the time I was a teaching assistant and I started to realize that I was turning up to work not completely coherent and the thing that actually got me into wanting to get sober was not to save myself, but it was for the kids' sake, because I was like, this is actually really not okay. And beforehand, I used to hold myself to quite a high moral standard. And each day it went down and down and down and down. And I was looking in the mirror, you know, the moments that I even could look at myself in the mirror, not knowing who was looking back at me pretty much was probably where I'd say my alcoholism took me. So now my life is totally different. I feel like I am authentically who I was always meant to be. Things are still tricky. Things are still hard because life is, you know, some things happen in life which are really difficult. But every single day I wake up sober, I give myself a chance. Every day I drank, I had no chance. There was no chance for anything, you know, and my life today is so full and I have to give credit to that, to a lot of it, to being in AA, to being sober and surrendering, giving up, you know, and having that option to finally let something else help me and other people help me because I knew I couldn't have done it alone. There was no chance. So, yeah. Life is good now, to be honest, guys. You know, I thoroughly recommend. I don't, you know, people always say like, do you ever think you'll drink again? And I say, look, just for today, I'm not drinking. But why the hell would I ever go back to a place where I couldn't get out of bed? You know, where I couldn't look at myself, where I wasn't esteemable, where I couldn't look after 30 kids in a class, where I couldn't be accountable and, you know, reliable. Why would I ever do that? <laughs> That's an amazing story, Katie. And yeah, congratulations on how long you've been sober. And you're, you know, you you think in A, like I did, I think I came in at 29, but I think everyone kind of thinks that anyone younger than, than them that comes in has, has kind of got lucky and, uh, you know, has 
got so much time ahead of them, which is which is amazing. Cool. Okay. And then I guess, yeah, with this episode specifically relating to, to treatment, it would be great to understand your experience with treatment. So, you know, right from the start, maybe even before you came into AA, maybe that was an option on the cards, but yeah, it'd be great to understand what your kind of thoughts and experience was before you you went in and, you know, how that's worked in conjunction with AA to, to date. And um, yeah, we can dig into that in a bit more detail. Yeah, cool. So, I mean, I think it's important maybe for me to say as well that addiction very much runs through my family. So it's something that I have heard about before. I've known people who had been in treatment or had been, you know, in a plethora of anonymous meetings. So I always knew that that was an option for me, but I didn't think I needed it. So my story is I went into the rooms first before going into treatment and I was terrified. I sat at the back of the room, not talking to anyone, bright red, sweating, couldn't look at anyone, thought if anyone looked at me in the eye, they would see my shame, what I'd done, (laughs) you know, what was going on and basically run a mile. And I said to myself, you know what, I'm just going in to just tell people that I've been sober for a week. So therefore I don't need help, you know, like I'm just going to do it for a week. It's going to be great. And then I can go back to drinking. And I went to a meeting and I can't explain to you what kept me in, but something, I heard something in that room. And actually for me, it was very much that people were being honest truly honest and vulnerable and I wasn't used to that in my life and that for me was so incredible that it made me want that it made me want to be able to be like that and I realized quite quickly after probably being in the rooms for a week that I needed a bit more help so I investigated going in to a day treatment place in London because I had actually been to an eating disorder treatment center when I was 18. So I was like, I just need a top up. It will be fine. I don't really have an alcohol problem. It's just stuff from the past. We'll get it sorted out. Everything will be great. And I'll be back out there. And I went and I kid you not, I did not know what was going to hit me until I got there. And I had to leave my job because, you know, it was, I didn't know how long I was going to be there for. And I was there as a day patient for two months and I didn't drink, but I was in so much pain. I was in so much pain that I didn't understand why people got sober. And I look back on it now and it's because I was, I wasn't honest. I wasn't ready to fully let go of all of my shame and my secrets. And that wasn't because I was ashamed to admit it to anyone else. It was a shame. I was ashamed to admit it to myself that this girl who had held everything together in her parents' divorce, who had held everything together through this and that, because that's very much who I was as a little background, you know, I was very much the sunshine kid who had everything together, who had everything sorted, would always bring people joy and happiness, who little did they know was very much dead inside. And I wasn't ready to admit that I had lost that part of me. So feelings before treatment, terrifying. 
but I think maybe it's more apt to talk about when I decided to go into an inpatient treatment center because that's where the real feelings came for me and the thought of going to treatment for me was absolutely terrifying because I did not fundamentally understand how anybody could live a life without alcohol in their life I fundamentally did not understand that people could have friends people could have a social life people could be happy and want to do anything but personally for me in my experience it got to that point where I was willing to lose it all in order to gain any ounce of hope and happiness and that is when I decided to go to treatment in South Africa I told my mum I would go for three weeks I ended up being there for three months and it is probably the best decision I have ever made for myself in my whole life. I'm very lucky that that was a possibility for me because I know for a lot of people, it's not a possibility. So I am very, very lucky and grateful that I was able to do that. And that's where, I mean, AA had been introduced to us in recovery and the 12 steps had been introduced to us at the day program. Um, We were expected to go to meetings every day, but I still wasn't ready. You know, I wasn't, it wasn't working for me. It didn't make sense in my head until I went to the treatment center in South Africa where I had no option but to get on that bus and go to a meeting with everyone and think, oh my goodness, what have I done? So yeah. Um, thanks Katie so much for the for that insight. And just to clarify for, for the listeners. So were these both 12 step rehab yeah. facilities? So s- similar to the AA program, they were running the AA program in the yeah, very much so. So actually in both of my treatment centers, all the counselors were people who had come into recovery through the 12 steps and through anonymous rooms and groups. So it was very much in line with the 12 steps and getting a sponsor, doing service. So even in the treatment center, for example, our version of service where someone would be on fire duty that night, someone would be on a cleanup duty. And that was you know, for people who don't, I guess, really know about AA or treatment or anything like that, very much for me, I'm a massive advocate of service. I believe service kept me sober. It kept me going to meetings and it helped me feel like a good person again. You know, it was small acts like that that helped me build my own self-esteem back up because I wasn't doing it for me. I was doing it for the other suffering, alcoholic or addict. So it's interesting to hear you talk about your experience because you've been exposed to treatment when you were younger for something else. And so from my experience, I remember when I decided to go to AA, I felt like I had three options. I had the option to kill myself. I had the option to call my parents and say, send me to the posh rehab in my hometown or go to an AA meeting. For me, those were the logical three doors that were in front of me. And I remember like personally, I was really debating between killing myself and AA. The the treatment center, bizarrely in the world in which I was debating between killing myself or AA, the treatment center was giving up on, on the life I'd started to have. I'd moved countries. I'd done a geographical, but in some ways that geographical was the best type of thing for me. It got me away from the US to the UK. I was actually in Dubai at the time. And so I felt like I had started to forge a life ahead And so I wasn't ready to be brought back to the US. And so that was for me, just this bizarre decision I took. And I said, well, I don't want to kill myself. I went into an AA chat room online and then 
you know, decided I'd give AA a try. And I've actually been to meetings at that treatment center in my hometown now, like a few times because they have open meetings. Uh, so it's quite interesting. The first time I went there it was very bizarre because there's another parallel universe, I feel, where I picked up the phone and said, bring me here. So, you know, you were saying that you gave up your, your job. Like for me, that was one of the big things that I want, I was concerned about for some reason, wasn't concerned about that when killing myself was the option, but was for the, the treatment center. So when, do you remember that decision and, and what was it like, was it an easy one? Were you concerned about the job? Was it the, you know, for me, I guess career was really big. So it's always remained a barrier. And I just wonder if anybody else is listening to this, thinking about that, what that process may have been like. I was absolutely terrified. I was absolutely, yeah, terrified. I can even, you know, talking to you guys now, I can feel that feeling in my chest of having to admit to my mum and my sister that, like you, it was either suicide or get me somewhere because me as Katie, I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't hold it together anymore and something genuinely bad was going to happen. And I was, you know, when you talk about the fear of losing stuff, I was terrified that I was going to lose my friends. I was terrified that I was going to lose my dignity, even though I already had, I can see that now, but back then I didn't quite realize that. I was scared that I was going to lose what everybody thought of me, what I thought I had put out into the world my yep I thought that I was never going to get that job again I thought and to be honest with you I didn't let them know that it was treatment I just said I'm really sorry but my mental health is really not okay and I've got to go and in that moment I knew that they could look at me and say we never want you back and I had to have faith that it didn't matter if they wanted me back or not, because if I didn't do this, I wasn't gonna be here. Just like you said, you know, and that could happen that day or the next day. And I genuinely didn't know how much longer I was gonna be able to do it for. Yeah, that makes complete sense to me now that I'm sober and can think clearly. I'm sure, you know, at the time not. Uh, so for the listeners, uh, you know, I personally obviously did not then have any experience with treatment outside of going to meetings at treatment centers and being at meetings that become focal point for rehabs. For those that have been around for a while, you start to know when you're at a meeting and there's a van of people that are dropped off from a rehab and then picked up and you see it. And, you know, those meetings have a certain flavor to them as a result of that. And that's always a, a conversation in AA because, you know, what's that experience like and, and everything like that. Jack, I know that you've had some experience with treatment. So do you want to share a bit about yours? Oh yeah, thanks Dan. And uh, I, like you actually, I didn't see rehab as an option when I stopped drinking. Uh, it was either yeah, AA or suicidal thoughts are definitely kind of fleeting, but like rehab was really at the bottom of the list. And I thought somehow, you know, by going to an AA meeting, that was, better than rehab because there weren't people from rehab there. I don't know. I, I don't know. And then I went into treatment. Actually, I I got my boss basically, well, he luckily, and I'm grateful for this, he's in the programs as well. And he, about seven months into my experience with AA, and I, I hit AA pretty hard, you know, I 
did it in COVID. I was going four or five meetings a week online. I really went through my steps and put a lot of work into them. I think the bit I missed out on in COVID was the like human connection bit. Like I hadn't really met, I hadn't met my sponsor till, you know, month four or five or something. And I'd hardly met anyone else from the program. I was calling a few people, but you know, really I was pretty isolated. I was living by myself. And yes, seven or eight months into my physical sobriety, but not emotional sobriety, my boss <laughs> told me he was signing me off work for a month and he strongly suggested that I get some more help, basically. And I, like you, Katie, is in a you know, pretty fortunate position that I had insurance to be able to kind of cover up the, the rehab and went to a nice one in Scotland, like I think similar to one in South Africa and and went for a month. But it was a different experience going sober and and not, you know, having, I was there for a month, but I went in with a clear, reasonably clear head and I feel like I got tons, tons from it, which I'm sure we can speak about in a bit more more detail and that was that was six months ago now so definitely you know glad I, I went and it allowed it gave me the time and space really to to dig more like yours it was AA you know for 12 step focused and you know gave me a lot more time to, to really dig into the program and kind of understand it in more more detail and you know get switch my priorities around you know like like Dan I was very focused on my job and work and I would almost I'd rather start drinking again than, than lose my job. And so I was kind of fortunate to be given the opportunity to sort it out before that, that happened. But yeah, we can talk about that a bit more. And I guess, again, for, for the listeners, Katie, just be interested to understand, you know, from your experience, what a day in the life looks like, you know, what happened when you turn up. These are questions that some people might be thinking about who are, who are listening, maybe considering it. So yeah, really just give us an overview of, of what it was like from, you know, when you got off the the plane and then what a day in the life looks like would be would be really useful yeah for sure I mean I kind of wish I had this before I I went because oh my goodness guys I was not in a good way on that flight and also because I went out sober I could not drink on that flight so I was full-on shaking my way of flying before was get as many whiskey bottles down me as I could with as many you know, pills of my choice down as I could to get me through the flight. And South Africa is an 11 hour flight. So that was surely fun. But yeah, so got off the flight sober because I said to myself, I'm 59 days sober getting on this flight and I want to walk off of this flight 60 days sober. And I kid you not that looking back now, that had to be a gift from my higher power because I think it had, if it had been like, I'm getting on this flight 45 days sober, I don't really care if I'm 46 because that's nothing, you know, but in my head, I was like, I need it to be significant. So I was very lucky. But yeah, I got off the flight and this little man was standing with a sign with my name on it. And I thought to myself, right, I have two options. I can go up to him or I know Cape Town really well because my family are from Cape Town and I could just get in a taxi, go to their house. Nobody will know. Luckily, he spotted me shaking and was like, you must be Katie. <laughs> I was like, yes. He was like, I'm Henry. Come, we're going. And I was like, oh, okay, sure. Like at this point, I was like, you know what? Let's do it. Let's go. And I went with him. We got in a van. He started playing the most bizarre music, talking to me about the church and God and the devil within 
and how that I was going to be saved. He was not part of AA or the treatment. He literally, basically the driver had dropped out. So they had to get a random man to come and pick me up and take me to this treatment center. So at that point I was thinking, oh my goodness, what is going on? What have I done? They're going to give me an execute, not an execution, an exorcism, an exorcism. And I'm never going to see my family again. You know, we got there. He, in my experience, I had to go to the doctor first. I had to talk to him about if there's any medication that I was on so that they could help me with that. I was on medication at the time and it wasn't actually really doing anything for me. So the doctor, I went through a bit of my backstory with the doctor, why I was there, what I had struggled with. And part of my story is very much struggling with severe anxiety and depressive episodes. So I spoke to him about that. We talked about how he could maybe help me. And after that, it was time for Henry to take me to the treatment center, which I'd only ever seen online. And I turned up and it looked absolutely nothing like the pictures online. And once again, I thought to myself, oh my goodness, what have I done? And I walked in and I remember beforehand, my heart was out of my chest. Like I said, I struggled with anxiety. So I mean, anyone's going to feel anxious at in that position, but I was like, oh my goodness, I'm going to faint. And I just, I think I remember just telling myself to take a dip, be, big deep breath in and it's all going to be okay. And I had to just keep telling myself that it's all going to be okay. And that got me through the door. I walked in and as you walk in, everyone was sat there around this table. And I, you know, I spoke very briefly about how my perception of myself at the time was very low. And I thought that maybe when I walked in, everyone was going to laugh at me. Nobody was going to want to talk to me. They were going to see all my stories and my scars and, you know, all these wonderful things I like to tell myself. And it was the complete opposite. I got welcomed with smiles, open arms. COVID wasn't a thing back then. So hugs were allowed and everything felt a little bit more okay. The nurses, there are nurses when you're in a treatment center who dispense the pills, but also around with you during the day. And yeah, I went in there, dropped all my stuff. They have to search your bags when you're there, which I also didn't realize. And I had um, snuck in a few of my favorite goodies to keep me going. They got taken away quite fast and that's food, not anything, you know, pills or booze related just for the listeners and that was a weird experience I shared a room with five other women that was also a weird experience and yeah that was pretty much my first day I got there during the evening when people were allowed their phones at my treatment facility we were allowed our phones for an hour a day and that was the only kind of contact I had with the outside world. But for the first week I was there, I wasn't allowed my phone. And yeah, I guess a day in a life of someone in treatment would be, you get woken up in the mornings by one of the nurses, if you haven't already woken up early enough, you go straight to breakfast because I was there also with my binge eating disorder. I had my breakfast weighed out for me and the nurse was looking over that for people who were there purely for alcoholism or drug addiction that wasn't a thing it was purely because I was there with an eating disorder as well and we'd all sit at the table together or I think there was 
15 of us. So really quite small rehab center. We would chat, have breakfast, have coffee. And then we would go and do a morning group where the group leader of the week, which would be someone in the rehab who had been there for a month or a few weeks was leading and would basically be in charge of the activities and what we did and stuff like that. We'd take the morning group where we would go around and say how we were physically feeling and emotionally feeling. We would then read, I'm not sure if you've spoken on this podcast about the Just For Today book, but little messages, daily messages, which we read in the mornings and at the Serenity Prayer. And then after that, we'd go make our beds. If our beds weren't made, you would be in big trouble. And I very much did not enjoy that because I was like, I'm a 23 year old woman. I do not need to be told if I need to make my bed or not. But then I also realized that was probably because I also had a problem with authority later on as my stay went on. But yeah. And do, then do had- you make your bed today? Did it, did it last? So for, for the it listeners, <laughs> Kate, Katie has just shown us her bed behind her and it does look made. So you know, maybe, maybe I should have gone just for that single, single thing. It is something you've got to do. Now, it's something I do now to make, you know, it's a standard. It's make my bed, brush my teeth. That's where I know where my sobriety is at. If that's failing, I'm like, Ooh, okay. A meeting is very needed. <laughs> Sorry, continue. So you've made your bed in rehab. Yeah. Made the bed. And then we had two morning groups where it would change each day. And then we would have a cigarette break, snack break, coffee break, and then we'd have another group. And this was always done by one of the therapists in the rehab. And then we'd all have lunch together. We'd sit on the table, go serve our lunch, sit, chat. We'd have about an hour for lunch. Then we'd have one more afternoon group. And then it would be time to do step work, which we got introduced to. And for the first week there, I didn't have to do any of that, but I had to write my life story which was then something that I later read out to my group so that they could get to know me. And also it was a really cathartic experience for me in general. And then in the evening time, you got to like chill, chat and relax. My friends and I, to be honest, would probably just listen to music quite a bit of the time. I'm not an avid reader. I read about 15 books in my time there, which is unheard of for me and sit by the fire And actually it was really special because it felt social and it felt that little bit of normality, which got completely taken away from me and yeah, have dinner. And then some of the people would go to a meeting that evening. It was split up into groups and there was one meeting room where I was in Plettenberg Bay and it was bizarre, but it was great. There was one little hut on the edge of like a cliff almost. And if you weren't at the meeting, you would be at the rehab and have your phone for an hour there was a lot of painting that we did and just chats and catching up and bonding to be honest and then there would be nighttime group how you were feeling what your goals were for the day and then bed so yeah pretty full-on day (laughs) nice climbing into a a nicely made bed is always a nice experience exactly (laughs) it's a good way to end the day jack what about you was it similar for you Anything kind of strikingly different from what you were doing to how Katie describes it? Yeah, I think pretty, pretty similar. I guess I can just go into a bit more detail on like, so we had similar groups, I think, where what those groups really taught me and I'll go into some of the names, but I had, I didn't really understand why I was an alcoholic and I didn't need to understand 
why I was an alcoholic to be able to stop drinking with AA, which is why AA is great to help you stop drinking. But what that reflect, but I, what that reflection time gave me, and some of the group titles were things like you know trauma, grief, cross addiction. So you know, looking at other things from sex to social media to gambling and just really like looking at your life a bit more holistically I don't know if you had any other different specialist groups Katie alongside those things did you I yeah we had quite a lot of work on the inner child and a lot of looking back into understanding and finding compassion for yourself of why you built up these almost defense mechanisms such as drinking and coping mechanisms you know to kind of understand because you know I like I said I've been lucky enough to have therapy so I understood a lot of the lingo whereas a lot of people there hadn't it was completely fresh completely new had no idea what AA was or anything like that and it was very much kind of understanding and learning as to why we may have you know grasped onto a few of these coping mechanisms kind of thing yeah and I think for me it helped me kind of forgive myself like I'd can, I'd, I was still blaming myself a lot for you know being an alcoholic and all the things I was still doing wrong in, in my eyes and you know grief and kind of shame were two words which really stuck with me from rehab which I, I didn't really cover in you know AA too much and, and actually a lot of the, the stuff I read in rehab was by Hazelden which is a publisher which publishes you know people can probably find online but a lot of AA and 12-step related literature but just for me there was you know those groups especially just helped me find kind of two or three key things that I still did feel a lot of shame about and did feel a lot you know was kind of grieving over and, and allowing myself to just understand and go through the process of that rather than continue focusing 100% on my drinking and you know how was how wasn't I going to drink that day and how much of a bad person I was for drinking that's slightly more holistic approach that, that I received in, in rehab just added on to what I might have got to in AA if I'd have you know done it a bit differently or just been there for a bit longer probably would have got through it if you know if I kind of just gone to AA for a bit longer and found out my you know through self-examination you know these these things but I, the good thing about rehab is yeah you get that holistic approach with where you kind of can dig into everything in your life especially like you're saying you know when you're younger and that how that's affecting you t today and that's something I really couldn't see before because you know in my eyes I had a pretty normal upbringing and I didn't really understand I didn't blame my parents I didn't blame you know any there was no there was no one to blame and so I ended up just blaming myself and I, I think that hurt me over time and, and that's something I it, you know helped rehab really helped me get over and yeah you know I definitely was really benefited from the from the experience and how do you feel now Katie when you know um looking back so uh, let us know how long ago you left rehab but then also you know looking back what you really benefited or what the real benefits were for you from from rehab versus because obviously we, you tried AA before not for too long but you know what you feel you benefited from going through the process so I left now gosh you guys are asking me big questions here this kind of stuff is not where my where I'm good at but 
God, nearly two years ago now, I think, just over two years ago. And looking back, I really did need treatment. I really needed those groups because I had got to a point where I wasn't feeling any emotion whatsoever. And I'd very much used from probably around the age of four years old to dull out those feelings. So for me, rehab was this incredible place where I started to understand like cognitive, like rationally, I could tell you, I could talk to you for hours about feelings, emotions, how someone was feeling, what this meant, what that could do, but actually feeling it in myself that was the first place I genuinely allowed myself the freedom to feel anything and not be terrified to feel it. And for me, I really needed that. When I was in AA, but I was still going out and seeing my friends and my family and everything like that, it didn't pair up for me because during the day, I could be Katie in recovery, really trying hard, really willing, really open and really honest but I, I could only get to a certain extent because I knew I had to get back out into the so-called real world. And by going to rehab, it meant that I didn't have to be the sunshine kid. It meant that it didn't, I didn't have to have this false face that I put on for my whole life. And, you know, looking back on it now, I definitely did, but they got it out of me. You know, I very much went around like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm so fine. I just drink too much and don't remember what I've done, you know? And they were like, well, that's not so fine, Katie. And it meant that for me personally, there was a lot of stuff, you know, like you were saying, I look back and I'm like, my childhood was fine. You know, like it is what it is. But there was a lot of stuff that I'd carried on and carried with me. And that became who I thought I was. And like you said, shame. Shame was probably one of the biggest things I had to tackle. And I still sometimes tackle today. And being in rehab meant that it gave me the time, the space, the able, the ability to create those trusting relationships with my therapist and the other people I was in treatment with to be truly honest and open about who Katie was in my core and truly understand why I may have done certain things and where it made sense and why I have these certain ideas in my head of who I am when it's not actually the reality of it, you know? It's really interesting for somebody who obviously didn't go through that process. And one of the things that you talked about there was the removal from your normal life. And I guess one of the things that you often hear people say, because I think it is fair to say that there's often a misunderstanding about treatment, about rehab, about that process and what it means for people by people who don't go through it, what it's like to then have to go back into the real world, because you hear people's relapses where they talk about, I came out of rehab and it just, what, you know, my foundation wasn't strong enough, my this, my that, and it was just like back into the real world. And so from your experience going through it, what do you, what do you think it is that you, you know, in rehab that can help give that foundation? So, I mean, for me, looking back, probably there are three of us who have stayed sober, clean and sober from rehab. There are people who have come back out, but are back in the rooms now. And there are people who have just gone back out and some who are no longer with us. And 
to be honest, I got to a point where I wanted it so badly. I was going to do absolutely anything and everything to carry on because I had had a glimpse of what life could be. And I say this now, and I truly believe it now, I have a thousand drinks left in me, but I do not have another recovery left in me because it took my all every day waking up and showing up for what I truly wanted because I knew that there was no other option for me. And I fully surrendered. I spoke about stuff in that rehab that I had never told a soul about. I got down to the ugly, the nitty, the gritty, the everything that I truly genuinely believed I thought I would take to my grave. And I opened it up. And for me, it meant that when I got back to London, yes, I still carried a lot of the shame. Yes, I still carried a lot of fear. But my first port of call wasn't to drink on it anymore. It was to talk to someone about it. And that for me fundamentally is the difference because before I went into treatment, before I even was aware that I was feeling a certain way, I would have a drink in my hand. And it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen quickly. But for me, you know, I used to say to people when I went into AA, I was like, oh God, ignorance is bliss. Now, when I relapse, I'm gonna know that I have another option. You know, I'm going to know that I'm doing something wrong now. Whereas before when I was drinking, ah, it didn't matter because I hadn't tried. I didn't know there was anything out there. And so it meant that when I got back, as much as I was terrified, I threw myself into young people's meetings. I threw myself into getting a sponsor. I threw myself into those rooms and I was just so painfully honest with myself and other people that honestly I didn't I it's hard it's hard and I think you guys probably relate to this for me I had to very much keep it in the day as I sometimes do now and that's fundamentally actually I think where it comes down to because it was very easy for me to look at myself in the future oh my goodness what's going to happen if I ever get proposed to I'm not going to be able to celebrate with champagne don't even like champagne but I wanted that champagne on my proposal what happens when I get married what happens with this what happens when my sister gets whatever it was there was always an excuse for me as to why I shouldn't stay sober and why recovery wasn't going to work for me however I said to myself if I can just get my head on the pillow tonight sober that's all I need to do today. And that is genuinely how I have got to two years and eight months over. 100% without fail, holding down a good job, having family relations, having friend relations, which are better than ever, you know, all of those kind of things. And it's not to say that the people who came out of treatment and relapse didn't try. This is just my story of what it was that I had to truly fully throw myself in to it and do anything and everything I could to stay clean and sober because... Like we said earlier, life brings you presents, which you least expect. And sometimes they're not ones you want, you know? And that's the time where I have to work my program the most. That's amazing, Katie. And yeah, it's been brilliant to, to hear your story. I think for, it's probably worth just mentioning, you know, for people that are considering treatment alongside AA or, you know, maybe don't 
can't dream is not available to them for for some reason i think i'll mention and it'd be good to get your guys thoughts on this as, as well but i think the one thing you know really which I realized in rehab, which I wasn't doing enough of in, in AA, and this will be different from, from people, you know, for, for other people was I wasn't, and you've said it a couple of times, Katie, you know, been really honest with, you know, myself and other people. Like I, when you're forced into a building with the same people for 30 days or 90 days in your case, who are all in the same boat, like you don't really have the opportunity to not, be honest with them when you're sitting in therapy sessions, you know, group therapy sessions where you're having to talk to each other all the time about how you're, a lot of the time about how you're feeling. And I just didn't get enough exposure to that at AA. Some of it was related to, you know, having to do stuff on Zoom and maybe not building enough relationships in, in AA, but, you know, having to be forced to build relationships, especially with other men and, be able to connect you know feel like I was sitting in a room and actually connecting with people rather than feeling like isolated in a room of people who all looked like they were connecting with, with each other and I I wasn't and so yeah I, I I was grateful for the opportunity but I think you know if I was to look back and that's one thing where if I did that NAA and made sure that I was doing more asking for help with from more people asking for their experience and you know learning more from them rather than just having a surface level conversation and then kind of moving on I think you know I'd probably be in um I probably would have advanced you know quicker and, and maybe not needed it in the first place and I just don't know if you guys have any other thoughts as to you know people who are think for people who are thinking about whether it's right for them or you know whether it's even available to them in the first place so one question that I'll come in for Katie on that is for both of you in your treatment centers or places or rehabs, because people use different names to describe them, were there people that were actively detoxing, had come in still active right before they walked in or was, you know, what was the balance of that and what was that like? And just like, how does that work for somebody that's never been? Is it, are you all in the same part of the process or is people at different stages, just maybe really quick view of that? Yeah, I mean, people were coming in, detoxing. People had some, a woman who I was with had been sober for 13 years, but needed some extra help with other things and also her mental health in general. Yeah, we had lots of people coming in who were detoxing. And for people who do come in detoxing, you're still allowed in, you're still welcome. There's nothing, you know, people don't look down on you for detoxing. And all it is, is you just don't join the program until you've detoxed. And that's all it is. So you can still talk with other people that you're in the treatments with. This is where I was anyway, but you'd be in your own separate room detoxing and nurses would be there to help you and kind of guide you as you go. Jack, was it similar for you? Or Yeah, most, most people had like just stopped drinking or were detoxing, you know, people were turning up drunk so there's I don't think there's a rule for for it the program is the same and you start most people would start the program again or from step one just because you know you're you're in a treatment center so you want to you're going because you want to start if you've been sober for a bit you're going because you want to start from scratch and really understand everything in more detail so I kind of went a bit quickly on the first um, few steps just so I could because I was only there for a month and just made sure I focused on what I needed to focus on but I'd say you know if you if it's your first time trying to get sober just go and follow you don't have to think overthink it just follow what you know what they're telling you to do and, and your, what your therapist is telling you to do I was a 
just because I was a few months and I have done my steps, I accelerated a little bit out of my choice. But, you know, I think in most centers, the therapist will guide us to how quick you should, you should go depending on, you know, where you're at in your sobriety, but everyone's, everyone's, everyone's welcome. Although <laughs> I don't know if everyone wants to go, but yeah, it's, it, and it's certainly was way less daunting being there a couple of days than it was on the outside. So, you know, if that's what's holding you back, you know, don't do not go just for those two days of kind of discomfort of being in a new environment and having to get to know new people. Katie, you talked about trying to have some food that maybe you weren't allowed in. For anybody that's listening to this about to go into treatment, they kind of know they're going. Is there anything that you wish you'd packed that you were allowed to bring that you didn't? Ooh, very good question. I mean, I had my friends actually bound uh, together and got me a soft toy. So I bought that with me. And I kid you not, I know I'm a, I was 23 at the time. That soft toy was my everything. Oh my goodness. I had pictures of my loved ones. That was massive for me because I had them by my bed. I bought, depending on where you're going in the world, fluffy socks, always a good idea. Always a good idea. You've got to be comfortable when you're going through the uncomfortable. And anything that maybe holds sentiment to you, if you have kids, for example, photos of them or anything like that, anything that might just remind you a little bit of home to give you that moment for me when I felt like giving up, really help me carry on going it's that kind of stuff and also just maybe a little bit of you know your favorite perfume or your partner's perfume whatever you fancy you know just something to have there that keeps you going for those times when you're feeling homesick jack what about you the one thing that i should have taken more of and i think this was because of covid because we couldn't leave the leave the the rehab but i went in thinking i was going to stop smoking and 90 eight percent of people there <laughs> were smoking every social interaction revolved around smoking and so you know don't be too hard on yourself if you're trying to give up drinking that's a big enough step and you know someone said this to me before and I didn't listen to them so other people probably won't listen to me but um trying to give up smoking whilst you're also trying to give up drinking is is probably uh, a step too far and and be easy on yourself a month or three or whatever it's not going to make too much difference hopefully <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I'll second that. Do not. I mean, I thought I was going to give up smoking. I was like, I'm going to be a primary school teacher. I'm going to smoke. It's going to be great. I probably smoked more than I'd ever smoked before being a treatment. And you know what? I needed it. <laughs> so yeah, do not feel hard on yourself with that. Yeah. I mean, as someone who didn't go through treatment, I, nicotine is part of my story. Absolutely. It's not smoking. It's a very Americanized version of nicotine, but it's different than smoking that I used to do. And I was given the advice not to drop it in the first year. And that was the right advice for me. It was something I could, you know, stop what's going to kill you in the order it's going to kill you was what I was told. So I will always echo that. Obviously, if there's other health things, you know, don't ever take my medical advice on anything. But if it's just on what works in recovery, that's my experience. So one one last question, and then I think we'll wrap coming from the, the non-rehab person in the group. Sometimes you'll hear people in meetings say this was like my rehab so for me i was in dubai for the first 45 days 50 days of my recovery and all i was doing was working and going to meetings there was nothing else social i was there for work it was very structured you know and i've heard a lot of people during covid say the term oh you know 
yeah, it was like I was in rehab when I was at home just doing Zoom meetings, things like that. First, have you ever heard people say that? And do you have a thought when people say that? And second, you know, is it just something that people say and you pay it no mind? Is it a term you've heard? I don't know. I heard it in a meeting last night. That's why I thought of this, actually. I mean, I think I've had it, you know, flying around a little bit. Like, oh, God, it, it must have been like treatment when you were isolating, you know, like you said, through COVID. And I think in my head, I'm like, oh, honey, no, treatment was so much more fun. Like I had some of my best memories <laughs> through going to treatment genuinely. And I have my best, some of my best friends now who I met at treatment. And so sometimes to be honest, it just makes me laugh. It really makes me laugh. Or maybe it might be a thing of a certain meeting style might have triggered that memory of treatment or a certain person in there has reminded them of treatment. That's kind of my thought process with that. Yeah, I, I, I like that. I think, you know, was so nervous and against it before going and then you know I'm still in whatsapp group months later where people are chatting every day about how they're doing um on their various you know recovery journeys across the country and the world and and I look back on it with kind of fondness and gratitude and just that I had the, you know the time and space to be able to to work on myself so you can definitely do it you know with AA all that rehab does is really just accelerate that and and you know gives you the real time and space to to do it in an environment where you don't have to think about a million other things but it's not you know there's no magic wand that you're paying for like aa is the magic wand and the 12 step program is the magic wand it's just you know you've got people around you more people around you more often who know what they're doing and can help you work it and you can find that in aa um, because there's hundreds of thousands of people in a who have more experience than you and you know if you need if you feel like you're struggling just keep reaching out to more people and you know you'll get the same experience yeah yeah I think that the thing for me actually as the person who hasn't gone through this process listening to you Katie what you said that was most interesting for me is that you know you still have to do the work that's still the thing it's on you it's on that you know it, it gave you the time and space to be able to do that but like the takeaway for me for listening to this has been just that, that, you know, at the end of the day, the reason that you're still here talking to us on a podcast about it is because you knuckled down and had a, a desire to go to any length, which is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, as people say, AA is a simple program for very unsimple people. We're complicated. It, it's how it is. But if you want it, it's there. It genuinely is right there. There's nothing stopping you from doing it, bar for me, myself, purely and utterly that is it. And I think I just want to say one thing, you know, for people who maybe can't go to treatment or whatever it is, or it's not possible, is I was absolutely terrified to ask for help. I was terrified to let anyone in. I was terrified. I was worried I was going to be a burden or anything like that. Ask for help. Just do it. The worst someone can say is, I'm really sorry, I don't have time right now, but can I, can I introduce you to this person? I have never, ever met, been met with anything but love in AA and openness and genuine care because that person can relate to, know, to what you are going through. So each time, if you do get that voice of, oh gosh, I can't reach out for help, I can't ask, do it anyway. Push through because they people in AA are the most giving people 
I have ever met in my life. And just do it. We can do the scary things. You know, we've all done it before. Anyone who's got a day more than you can help you. And that's what we're there for. And I think for me, that was what I wish I could have told myself at the beginning. If I could go back now and tell myself one thing, it's just ask, what's the worst that can happen, you know? Exactly. So with that, what is something that you're grateful for today? Oh, gosh. I am grateful that, okay, I'm going to give you guys two things because I'm feeling very grateful today. So I'm grateful that I have a body and mind that moves and works. And I am grateful that I am sober, genuinely grateful that I am emotionally and physically sober and to talk to you guys. So that's three, my bad. (laughs) Jack. I'm not usually this materialistic, but like debt was part of my story. And I basically went and bought my whole, myself a whole new golf kit and winter clothes and everything today. And I was proud to be, you know, able to like buy myself some new stuff, which I want because it's something I enjoy. And like, I still know I'll get to the end of the month without having to borrow money off someone to, you know, go to the pub and the, before Christmas, like, because I have some money in a bank account and I, I would just felt really grateful, you know, just the actual process of buying that stuff today, which I don't usually do because I actually hate wasting or spending money most of the time unless it was on alcohol or drugs. And yeah, so I'm grateful for my new golf kit today. What about you, Dan? Yeah, I'm I'm grateful for knowing how I went to sleep last night and waking up this morning. It's dead simple. I have to say that every time somebody asks us because that's all I need in my life. However, you know, you know, I like buying a nice thing every now and then. So I'm I'm jealous of of you right now, Jack. I don't play golf, but maybe, you know, one day I'll get out there on the links. So with that, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back next week with a speaker and topic please like and subscribe if you have any questions or feedback about what you've heard today we'd love to hear from you send us a message on instagram at young and sober podcast or email us at young and sober at outlook.com also if you're on itunes five star review please that's it for yet another episode we are young and sober (music) 